Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I should start this way this morning. Happy spring, everyone. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's good. That wasn't, wow. I don't think some of you believe it. It is coming. Yeah, happy spring to all of you. Well, we're now, again, like I've been saying for the last few weeks, coming near to the end of this uh, amazing series we've gone through in the book of Romans as we've systematically walked through one of the more difficult and yet one of the more uh, meaty books of all of Scripture. And we're in Romans chapter 14, so if you want to turn there or use your PDA, that would be great, and we'll, we'll start walking through this together. Um, today's message is an interesting one. Today's message is how do you get along with Christians that you don't like or you disagree with? <laughs> yeah. It's a very, very important message for our community. It's actually an important message for every single church that Dave prayed for today. I want to start by saying that a lot of times church conflict happens in unexpected places. Landmines would be a good example. Uh, you're not expecting it and it suddenly blows up in your face. I want to start this morning with three different examples uh, in my own life, in my family's life, where there was potential for disunity that didn't need to happen. It was in grade 11. I was in Pickering High School. I was in a world religions class. There were four of us who were followers of Jesus in that class of 35 plus. We were there. We had the great uh, opportunity, because it was a world religions class, to actually present the gospel of Jesus in high school. And so we did. The next day, a group of our friends, Hindu students, came and presented their faith. And so we listened intently. And then they did something very interesting. They said, and, and unlike the other groups, we brought food. I went, oh, uh, anyway, and uh, I love Indian food. I'm a sucker for Indian food, top three, and that's one of them. And so they brought this beautiful Indian food. They said, our moms have worked all week, and here it is, and it was a beautiful spread. And as they started bringing out all the food, suddenly they brought out an idol. And they put the idol in the middle of the room, and they said, and all this food is dedicated to this God. Come and eat. Well, at that moment, I'm sitting there going, hmm. I looked at the four other Christians. Everyone goes up and eat. I went to the teacher and I said, could the Christians have a timeout, please? She said, okay. And we went to the corner. And here we are in the middle of Pickering and Ajax, opening the Bible to Romans and 1 Corinthians to find out if we were allowed to do this. Now, what was interesting is if we didn't have a unanimous understanding between each other, it could have actually broken our unity. Here's another example. It comes from my grandfather. My grandfather is turning, I think, 91 this year. Uh, he's my last remaining grandfather and grandmother, and he, he's there. He's an amazing Christian man. And he became a Christian in a, in a mega church actually in Vancouver called Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was a huge church in its time. And so he was part of a very up-and-coming youth group. And the, the big thing that they were doing is they were using a piano to worship Jesus. Oh, mm, that's right. And so the whole youth group, a huge youth group, used to gather around a piano and sing. One day during their worship time, someone walked in and declared to them that this was the work of the devil. The devil should have no place at all in their church. Pulled out a hammer and smashed the piano in front of the youth group. See, all you pro-him piano people, you have no clue how worldly you really are. <laughs> Disunity. Unexpected. Another one is alcohol. 
When I was in Bible college, I went to a really good one, and they had a, a ban on alcohol. They said that if you attended the school, uh, undergrad or graduate school, you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. Well, I led the, uh, the group to actually remove that ban, not because I wanted to drink, because I thought it was unbiblical. You had all sorts of pastors and full-time ministry and others at the seminary, and it was a stumbling block for them. And so we met with actually really good attitudes. We talked to professors and the leaders, and it was changed because, again, it was a stumbling block to a group of people who said that was okay. Three weeks later after the ban, I'm sitting in a pub, not drinking. I was there for the wings, tickled toad, it was called. And I'm with a group of my friends, and some people were drinking and some people weren't. Suddenly, I watched something begin to take place in front of me that disturbed me deeply. All these other students who had never been exposed to alcohol before because they came from a more conservative church suddenly were exposed to alcohol and suddenly got drunk. Other students around them said it was just fine. It was called freedom in Christ. Disunity. See, those three examples show us something that we all need to be very aware of today, and it's this. We are called to live in the tension of the freedom we are given in Jesus and not sinning, and helping to pertain, pertain uh, sorry, get unity among us. I mean, Jesus prayed it best, right, in John 17, where he said, I've given them glory that you've given me, that they may be one as we are one, I am in them, you're in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you've sent me, and that they've loved uh, and, and have loved them even as you have loved me. And so at the heart of our movement is this idea of unity, and yet there are all these gray areas that if we go off track, disunity will happen, and suddenly terrible other things will happen. I found a little poem this week which is really quite profound, and I think it reflects what really happens in churches beyond Jesus' prayer. It goes, believe as I believe, no more, no less. Think that I am right, no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. The problem that we face in the church is this. As one said, the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bound up, better or for worse, with the degree of unity we display with each other and the world. Our Christian unity, he writes, is of utmost importance, and yet our unity is continually shattered by secondary issues and a lack of understanding. So what do we do? I mean, how do we all get along being so different? I mean, this was the reality in Rome, too. Jews and non-Jews were coming to Jesus. Slaves in Rome from all around the world had been captured and now owned. They became Christians, and suddenly their masters became Christians, and suddenly they have to do church together. The truth was, other than Jesus, they had nothing in common. And then many non-Jews had come out of a spiritually bankrupt paganism or formal cults, and then there was the Roman Jews. They were more Jewish than the Jews in Rome or in Jerusalem. And Paul is about to say in Romans 14 that his own version of Christians, law-observing Jewish Christians, were weak believers and liberated non-Jews were stronger Christians. And this was causing tension and nothing is new under the sun. Churches, including our own, are full of what Paul is going to talk about today. There is no such thing, by the way, as the good old days. The church then is as it is now, full of fallen, hypocritical, yet saved people that sometimes get along with each other. Amen? That's the truth. And then we're just people, right? 
We all have unique DNA. Our circumstances, viewpoints, opinions, preferences, natural and learned abilities, and different spiritual gifts. Then we even solve problems differently. We have different convictions and prejudices, and we all have different sinful struggles. And so all of that is about to come to bear when Paul says to us, we have to continue to do church together in genuine unity. So what do we do when we don't agree on things that are secondary? Romans 14.1 goes like this. Please, would everyone listen closely today? Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. Weak does not meet, weak means not mature enough to grasp all things. This is not talking about weak in the basic Christian faith. These people understood the gospel, the basics of the faith, church practice, and even spiritual disciplines. Weak does not mean young either, by the way. Many weak among us are older and younger. This is not a derogatory term, but certain people will be weak in the areas of their deepest woundedness or their historical struggles. As a pastor, I see this all the time. Those that have dark backgrounds among us tend to be much more black and white because they need boundaries to prevent them to go back to the life they've been saved from. The problem is when they turn around to everyone else and say, and you need my boundaries too. Here's a great example from Chuck Swindoll. Think of a man who wasted his youth in the 60s. More than a decade, LSD, marijuana, free love eventually led him to homelessness and and a diseased body. Then, like the prodigal son, he came to his senses, he repented, he found complete redemption in Jesus. A community of genuine believers helped him cope with the damage done by his past, helped him to find steady work, and then he studied the word of God and he grew in his faith. Well, that's now all ancient history for that man. Today, his old hippie friends would barely even know him. He's got a sparkle in his eye. He bounces when he walks. He actually has the love of Jesus in him. He's a strong church leader, well-liked, and he's even deeply respected. One day, a young pastor in his church, in charge of the teen ministry, decides to have a little fun with the kids. He organizes a 60s party. Tie-dyed t-shirts, beards, wigs, black light posters, smoke machines, the works. And then he writes, do you see what's about to happen? Do you think that youth group or that youth pastor even understands the trouble that's brewing? To him, the CDs contain nothing more than oldies, antique, soft rock music. No offense, everyone. Nothing, he would say, compared to the vulgarity and sexuality that he's exposed to all the time on XM or on the radio or online. And the costumes are nothing more than an excuse to laugh at each other. And the decorations, they're harmless fun. But for that man... They represent a life of debauchery and a Christless eternity. What to do? See, this is all about gray areas between us, what Paul calls disputable matters. Now, for those in Rome, it had to do with meat that had been sacrificed to pagan deities, like my experience in grade 11. They would kill an animal, a small portion would be given to the idol, and the rest would be sold in the local market. Loblaws, fresco, whatever. So, the question for Christians is, could you buy the meat? Could you eat the meat? Should you not touch the meat? Now, the animals were not slaughtered properly either according to Jewish Old Testament law, so Jewish Christians refused to touch it. And then there was the issue of holy days. Uh, Should we keep doing the Sabbath? Should we celebrate all the festivals that were done in the Old Testament? As one person said, the whole passage is about disunity and disharmony about diets and days. Paul says in verse 2, one man's or woman's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person's whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. Many Jewish Christians had become vegetarian because of the above issues. Now, Dave Adams rightly reminded me this week that this is his life 
verse. Since he hates vegetables and reminds us all the time in the office that only the weak eat vegetables and only the strong eat meat. He is pro-keg, pro-keg, pro-keg. So you vegetarians, he thinks you're just weak, weak, weak. Well, back to the text. Here's, here's a picture that one pastor painted below where things unexpectedly could go wrong between genuine believers 2,000 years ago. He says, imagine a non-Jewish brother returning from the corner store with an armload of meat. He meets his Jewish Christian brother, Boaz, and Boaz cheerfully greets him. Oh, grace and peace to you, my Christian friend. What do you have there? Oh, he says, man, Boaz, good to see you. We're having barbecue tonight, and I got some great prices. New York strip, 11 cents a pound, T-bone, 9 cents, and oh, the pork. Boaz, the pork. The back ribs, the bacon. Listen, it, I'm making my special sauce, and so because it's all about sauce. There's no such thing as dry rub, side note. So why don't you, why don't you come on over, bring, bring the kids, and we'll have some fellowship together. Boaz assumes a totally angry, grieved expression and leaves without even speaking to him. The non-Jewish brother is taken aback, has no clue. He just wanted to do barbecue. And then realizes what happened, and he's really angry because he's being judged. You know what the temptation is, right? Down the street next week, there will be the Holy Spirit Dominion Vegetarian Church. And the third, right? And the Trinity Carnarvon. Like, that's what happens. We all laugh about it, but many of us have experienced this very thing. Paul says in verse 3, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man or woman who does, for God has accepted them. Look down means to disdain, to look at with, as nothing, to reject with contempt. Paul sets all of us up and says, you may not, you are not allowed to cause disunity, period. You who are weaker, he's about to say, grow up. And you who are stronger, he's going to say, you need to breathe a little and stop being so proud. Why? Here's why. Because God has accepted all of us. There is an equal footing at the cross. God, before the beginning of time, elected them. So guess what? You need to hang out with them also. Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Simply put, we are owned by and responsible to Jesus. And so who do you think you are? Again, this is talking about neutral or secondary issues. There are many things that must be taught and we are called to be accountable for. And in these places, we, we actually have the right to be judged. Paul knows that we are, uh, by, by temptation, are going to head down this path. And so he addresses another big elephant for that church in the room. So without fear, he brings up this next issue. What do you do with Sabbath observance and all the other Jewish festivals? What should Christians do? He says in verse 5, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. This is talking about doing worship, not on Sundays, but on Saturdays. Also, many Jews who were Christians believe that all the festivals in the Old Testament that are found within that sort of religious calendar must be followed. Every time a major Jewish holiday would come up, tension would begin to arise in every local church. As Christian Jews were preparing for Passover, sweeping their house clean of dust and yeast, non-Jews who were Christians were actually buying fresh bread, and it was their day off not to clean, and they didn't even think about it. It was like a scab that kept getting picked off over and over again. 
Paul comes and says, unexpectedly probably to both groups, you're both right, and this tension does not need to exist anymore. He says in verse 6, He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord, and he who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does it also to the Lord and gives thanks to God. One wrote it this way, Paul's indisputable point here is this, people with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can be both perfectly in the right with God. In the historical context of Jews, uh, Christians who were from a Jewish background wanted to keep the Sabbath and abstain from meat and wine, fine. If other Christians who neglect the Sabbath and wanted to eat meat and wine, that's fine too. Both positions are acceptable Christian positions, and believers who hold each position should not, here it is, condemn each other. Verse 7, none of us lives to themselves or himself alone. And none of us dies to himself alone. We all live our life for and in the sight of one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet we're not all islands. We live with and connected to each other. Our our family, our church, our lives, our decisions, our judgments, our theological views affect each other. As one said to older Christians, in our eagerness to see new Christians grow, mature believers frequently rob new believers of their joy. By laying burdens on them right away. Oh, well, welcome to Jesus. Stop smoking, start reading your Bible, get out of debt, give more money to the poor, dress appropriately, eat eat less fat, you know, on and on and on it goes. And the new believer is just like, I just met Jesus. What? It is foolish to expect a new believer to act like a mature believer. Further, the motivation needs to be right. We don't want new Christians to be doing things that are godly to impress us. It needs to come out of a place where the heart has actually been changed, and it's about worship, not godly peer pressure. So what do we do? What could be done to try to keep all of us together with such diversity? Well, Paul, in this passage, turns to our only unity Our unity is based on the lordship of Jesus, the one that we have all met and the one that we live for in the now and will for eternity. He says in verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. If you then, why are you passing judgment on your brother or sister? Or why do you look down on your brother or sister? I have found that keen, that's a good word, keen, weak Christians are prone to swift, uninformed, unloving, ungenerous judgment about things that the risen Jesus does not even care about. Both the weak and strong end up not walking with Jesus. See, the hardest thing for us as Christians to understand is this. The temptation is to go in one of two directions to go towards legalism, which is setting up a bunch of rules not found in Scripture, so we don't violate the rules in Scripture, or licentiousness, which is to live like hell, though we're going to heaven. And the problem is both of those things in Scripture are condemned. The truth is Jesus is somewhere in the middle, and the road he walks in is something called life. And our temptation is, because of history, personality, or even by spiritual gifts, we will tend to edge toward one of these two. But the point is, we need to be here. As one of your pastors, though, I do need to say this morning, do not take this passage out of context. Some of you love saying, well, you can't judge me. But the Bible points out many things that we are commanded to do and not to do. 
We are commanded to worship God alone and no one else. We are commanded never to commit adultery. We are commanded never, ever to stop going to church, but actually to do church more regularly. We have the right to be judged on these things. What he's talking about is secondary issues where Christians disagree or neutral things the Bible does not forbid or command. Paul is saying with some force this morning, stop trying to take God's place in each other's lives. Weak people, stop judging everyone. And strong people, don't be so full of contempt. That is why Paul reminds all of us that the end actually is coming and the one we're going to give an account to is no one here but the one we all serve. Verse 10, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account himself or herself to God. God is going to judge our deeds and our motivations for everything we've done. What has been done truly for him will last, but much of what we think we have done for him will not last because it was not done out of a place of worship. It is before the sovereign Jesus, who is Lord over all, that every one of us will give a personal account. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 3. It will be revealed with fire, our works, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives, they'll receive reward, but if it's burned up, they will suffer loss. The point here is this, that we're going to give a personal account to God himself. And so since that is coming, let us not take the place of God in each other's lives and judge each other on secondary issues that heaven really does not care about for the extended community. He says in verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on each other. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or your sister's way. Stumbling block and obstacle are two different words, and they're intentionally used. Imagine with the stumbling block idea, someone who's free in Christ. They're great, they're doing well, they're running, they're, they're joyful, and suddenly a legalistic Christian who thinks they know better sticks out their foot and trips them. That's a stumbling block. An obstacle is actually more insidious. An obstacle actually is where we get the idea of a trap from. It's actually a trap to kill rabbits in this context. But the, the, the word is, that is. And so this is how it works out. He is saying, do not trip anyone in their faith. And also, do not set a trap, knowingly or not, for someone who could be weaker. Again, one pastor wrote it this way. Picture a brand new Christian trying to discern what's appropriate as a believer to live life now. Perhaps taking their cues from mature Christians. Now picture a reckless believer who frequently drinks to the point of getting drunk. The example I showed at the beginning. And defends their choice as freedom in Christ. The reckless example has now set a trap for the brand new Christian. Paul says in verse 14, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced, getting back to the food issue, that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for them, it's unclean. For Paul, all food was good. There was nothing wrong with anything. It was all kosher. And he got this because Jesus taught this. Matthew, Mark 7. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of him that makes him unclean. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into the heart, but it goes into the stomach and then out of the body. Paul is saying simply this. If you're a weaker Christian and you think things are unclean, then it's for you and you alone. Defilement is located in people's minds, not in neutral objects like food. 
Now again, I need to stop and say to our community, this is talking about neutral objects. This is not talking about items that are sinful and evil in their purpose. You can never say this about a pornographic magazine. You can never say this about a Ouija board or tarot cards. These are things forbidden by Scripture because they lead us down paths we are forbidden to. He says in verse 15, If your brother or your sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider to be good to be spoken of as evil. If you allow your freedom in Christ to cause pain, distress, or even to destroy or shipwreck a weaker Christian, you're no longer acting in love and freedom. You're acting out of selfishness and arrogance. Jesus Jesus loves, he says, that person or that church group or that group more than we ever will. He thought of them. I mean, the Father called them and elected them. Jesus cried out, it is finished for them, and the Holy Spirit sealed them. We are called to walk the tightrope between love for others and Christian freedom. That's why Paul says in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy found in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by people. Our movement at its heart is not about the externals. It's about the eternals. It's not about what we eat or drink or wear. It's always about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not Israel. The kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God is is the place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed and accepted. And that happens in the heart. And it always happens through one person, the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is terribly grieved. Let me say this again. The Spirit of God is terribly grieved in churches when we divide over disputable issues, neutral issues, or secondary issues not addressed formally in Scripture. Verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort, every effort, to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. We are called to build up a common life with each other. We who are in freedom need to always ask the question, are we doing this for ourselves or for others? And yet the truth is, much of the time, what Paul commands does not happen. Let me use uh, an older example. The two most famous pastors in Victorian England was a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who many of you know, but many of you do not know about another one. Joseph Parker. Both of them were mighty preachers, very famous, huge ministries, and they were friends. They used to exchange pulpits with each other. They used to fellowship with each other. They did church together. One day, though, Spurgeon got really angry at Parker because Parker went to the theater, not a movie theater, the theater, and he declared out loud, Mr. Parker is sinful. Well, guess what? There was a newspaper reporter in the room. Suddenly, it was in the newspapers. Our equivalent today is blogs. Suddenly, The response came quickly. I may be sinful because of the theater, but I'm not the one smoking cigars, Mr. Spurgeon, every single day. The dispute got worse. One person asked Spurgeon one day, don't you smoke cigars? He says, yes, I do. He says, well, isn't that wrong? He says, I don't smoke an excess. He says, what's excess? He says, I don't just, you know, fine, two two a day. That's all I do. Now, the point is, who was right and who was wrong? Neither. Both of those things are disputable matters, but they allowed their ego to get in the way of God's kingdom, and it hurt their ministries, their friendship, and the reputation of Jesus. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man or a woman to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. 
It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the person who does not condemn himself by what he approves. If you let these things fester, first and foremost in you, if you talk about these things in your family, if you start talking about disputable matters in your small group, you will start moving questionable and cultural things to absolute things and spiritual things. You will be responsible for bringing disunity, mutual distrust, and then the breakup of a congregation. And trust me, on Judgment Day, Jesus is going to talk to a lot of people about how they violated his bride. Paul says very clearly, verse 23 this way, the man or woman who has doubts condemns if they do this, if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, if you cannot come to resolution on an issue that's disputable, don't you dare do it because you're violating your own conscience. Now, the question we ask this morning, as we always do, is this. What do we learn from this? How do we apply this very difficult and needed text for Crothers Creek and any other church we're part of in the future? Well, here's four simple things, and they're big. One, the only option for us is to accept one another. If God has called us into community, then we must follow Jesus' prayer to have unity. You cannot choose who God calls. You can only live with those God has called and serve them. As one pastor wrote, the wise apostle Paul gives us four dues. He says we must determine never to be the stumbling block. We must live as citizens of the kingdom of God, focusing on eternal things, not external things. Third, we must actively pursue what benefits other Christians, and we must do everything we do with a clear, informed conscience. The only option we have is to accept each other. It doesn't mean we agree with each other. It doesn't mean we like each other all the time, but we genuinely do accept each other. Second, here's a question that I thought about this week. What about manipulation from weaker Christians among us? I mean, if some of you are stronger Christians among us, do you always have to live under their prison? The answer is no. Again, Chuck Swindoll was great when he read, so does this mean that the mature believer must continually, continually exist in a prison constructed by the feeble sensitivities of weak Christians? No, that does not need to happen. Protect your privacy, he writes. Choose your environment. No one says that you have to surround yourself with weak faith people your whole life. But when you do find yourself in their company, however, he says at this moment, voluntarily set aside your liberty. It's a mistake, he writes, to think that you can loosen up weaker Christians by flaunting your freedom. It's very difficult, he says, for people to learn a lesson when they're being offended at the exact same time. Instead, create a teachable environment where you sit back, give up your liberty in their presence, not all the time, and then after some while, after a while, begin to ask some very pointed questions. For you who are stronger among us, you do not need to give up your freedom of Christ forever. But when you're in the presence of weaker Christians, you must always give it up because we never want someone else's faith to be shipwrecked. So here's the grand question this morning. If it's not Saturday or Sunday debate with us, or it's not meat, then what are the battles that face the church today, at least in the West? How many times have I heard this phrase as a pastor, and before that as just a Christian walking the life, when I heard, well, that person can't be a good Christian because fill in the blank. Well, here are all the gray areas I could come up with this week, and I know there are more. 
But these are all the things that could divide us that don't need to divide us. One, going to the movies. There is huge debate, even in a church like ourselves, about what you can do at the movies. Now, I need to say as a pastor, there is a lot of garbage in the movies today. Wouldn't you agree? Mass, sex, and gratuitous violence. Listen, that stuff is just wrong. But when you start saying, well, you never can do this or that, or, you know, R is bad, but PG is... Listen, it's a disputable matter. Breathe, everybody. Breathe. Movies cannot divide us. Here's another one, not probably as big in this church, cosmetics. In a lot of uh, churches, and especially ethnic churches, wearing cosmetics is seen as worldly. And yet for others, it's not a big deal at all. Some of you are going, really? Seri- ser- seriously? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. There's a church much larger than Crothers Creek in the world. And so uh, cosmetics can be a dividing point between Christians. It's probably not here, but it is for others. Alcohol is a huge one. Many people think it's fine to drink without getting drunk. Others say, well, I come from a background where that was connected to sin, or maybe you're an alcoholic, and I just can't touch that, or, or, or I just I cannot in good conscience do that. Fine. That should not and cannot divide each other. Those things, again, it's a disputable matter. The reason why wine is brought up in this passage is because it was actually an offering to idols. It had nothing to do with drunkenness, as a side note. It was used as drunkenness before the idols, but it was actually an offering. So the point is here, and it's important, alcohol should never divide us. So if you're at a small group or a gathering and someone brings out wine or beer, here's my suggestion to everyone. If you truly are a Christian community, just you should ask, will this break anyone's conscience? Is this causing anyone to stumble? And if you're a close enough community, you should be able to say yes or no. This is where we need to get as Christians. We need to talk about these things versus being silent about them and then getting angry later. Tobacco is another one. Now, of course, I think we all know smoking's bad, but I know many of you here like a pipe or you like a cigar, and other people would never touch that. It is a disputable matter. And before you say, John, that's too far, remember, the Chinese buffet you're going to have in two hours is just as bad as a cigar. Right? Like, right? Yes. Disputable matter. It's a disputable matter card playing. We were laughing. Someone is playing cards out there today. Obviously not an issue in our church. But for some people, because it's connection and it's history, it's a real issue. Well, then just don't play cards in their presence. Dancing. Well, obviously we have a dance floor in our church, so we have an opinion on that in our fellowship hall. But you didn't know that. We call it a rhythmic movement floor for conservative people. It's it's okay. (laughs) It's no problem. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up a Baptist, so I I understand, you know. Yeah, I won't say the joke. That's in my head, actually. (laughs) No, that will lead to disunity. Um, Yeah, dancing. You know, is dancing fun? Of course it is. But lots of dancing isn't. And, And excuse me, I need to be very direct. When you basically are having sex standing up, it's wrong. Unless you're married. Do it in your bedroom. But other than that, it's wrong. So honestly, please hear this. Dancing divides people, and it and it shouldn't. Fashion. Fashion's a huge one that divides Christians, even in this church. Some people view trendiness as worldliness, and you can get withering judgments back and forth on what type of clothes a real Christian should wear. It's a dividing issue that Paul does not address, or Scripture doesn't address. Also, what you wear to church becomes a dividing issue. You know, suits or no suits, casual or or not. You know, Odell and I were talking one day. He's a suit wearer, and I'm not, but we're very good friends. And, And it's interesting. In certain cultures, 
You, you bring your best to church because you're coming before the king. You put on your best suit. Others of us who didn't grow up in the tradition come casually because we just want to come as we are. And wearing a suit to us would basically be saying, I'm dressing up, but I don't really mean it. Both those positions are right. Here's what we say in our DNA document. Come to Crothers as you are. All are welcome. That's the heart of it. So this, the clothing thing, other than if it's incredibly rude or, or, or sexual, it should never divide a church and can never divide a church. Bible translations is another one. In certain Christian circles, if you got the wrong translation, well, you're just probably not a Christian. The King James only, the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard. I love what Brett Allman preached here. I think it was this year or last year. What's the best Bible you should read? The one that is in your hand right now. That was just right on. And you know, the other thing we need to realize, are there strengths and weaknesses of translations? Of course there are. And, and all of that should be talked through. But just don't forget, when you're debating someone about the best translation, half the world doesn't even have the Bible written yet. Or, or what about all the people, here's a side note, who can't read, so we actually have to put the whole Bible into song and story and orality. What do you think about that? See, that is a disputable matter. And trust me, on Judgment Day, God is going to have conversations about this. It just didn't need to happen. Sports, for some people, is a dividing line. It's competitive, it's ego, it's sinful. Again, that's a disputable matter. Music, of course, is a huge one. I don't need to bring that up with everyone to know. I mean, what's appropriate? Old hymns or new hymns? In my small group last night, we were laughing about this because in the Bible, by the way, you know what hymn means, right? Any scriptural truth put to song. That's all it means. So we, we only sing hymns in this church. That's all we sing. Actually, every church on earth only sings hymns. They're just different types. Choirs, no choirs. I just, again, want to remind everyone. In the end, most of the debate about church music is about taste. It's about style. It has nothing to do with spirituality. Never come to the place where you spiritualize a certain style of music. You end up sinning when you do that, and you end up being the weaker Christian. Worship is about singing to God and giving him honor. Now, here at C4, we have a certain style we've chosen. And like we said in the future, God willing, if we do some other venues, we'll have some different styles. But listen, it's a cultural decision. And none of those cultural decisions in worship are better than worse. Better or worse. You know, in my, in my mother and father-in-law's Tahoe, when we, we were using it for a bit, uh, they had XM radio, and there was a Christian channel, and there was three sub-channels. And so I found it, I did an experiment. Uh, one of them was worship like we would do here. It was called The Message. So it's Chris Tomlin and Hillsong and Hillsong United, all of that stuff. The next one is All Black Gospel. And the next one is, well, I just called it Gaitherville. You know what I'm talking about, right? Gaither, it's southern, southern Gospel. So I have my preferences, but what I did as an experiment while I was driving once is all I did is I decided to listen to the words. And what I discovered amazingly is all three channels were saying the exact same thing. Do you think, honestly, God is up there going, well, you know, hill songs, oh, it's good, the Anglicans, I don't know, a little ritualistic for me. No! This is the, this is the heart. We keep dividing over culture and that means we don't even come to church prepared to worship because we've got a cultural battle going on in our mind and we forget that we're not even the audience. God's the audience, everyone, not us. Worship can never divide a church. You may have a preference, that's fine. It's all good, but don't spiritualize it and never let it divide a church. Material wealth is another one. The tension is manifested in things like this where people say statements like, and here's an example, well, stop me if I'm wrong, George. But you've been spending a lot of money on that car, haven't you? George goes, no, what are you talking about? 
you know, it's a K-car, what? You know, uh, the conversation goes back and forth. And then here's, here's the God card line. Well, I think you could use that money much better. I mean, couldn't you be using all that money with a leprosy fund? Gray area. You have no clue what George is giving. And by the way, if you're saying that, I hope you're tithing first. Lots. Remember again, material wealth and judgment about material wealth will always divide a church because we're always judging the person's heart without seeing what they're doing. As one charged his church, I will read it this way. According to Romans 14, wherever you stand on these issues and others, another one could be Christmas, Easter bunnies, etc., you must accept your Christian brother and sister who differs. If you're an abstainer, don't judge a person who participates. If you participate, don't judge or disdain the abstainer. This call to accept one another is the only thing we are commanded to do. If we obey him, then we'll be blessed. If we don't obey him, we'll be held accountable. Last thing I want to end with, and I'm done, is this. The other great place where Christians divide, which we need to address this morning, is secondary theology. Beyond the essentials of our faith, the virgin birth, the authority of Scripture, Jesus being God in flesh, many Christians, genuine, loving Christians, disagree on issues like women in ministry, spiritual gifts, the nature of communion, church government, etc., etc. Are these matters important? Yes, they are. For any of you go, well, it just doesn't matter, it's all going to pan out in the end, that's not responsible either. Again, these issues can be looked at and defended out of Scripture. There's a reason why I, John Thompson, I'm not an Anglican or a Pentecostal, because I don't agree with them on key secondary issues. But they're my brothers and my sisters, and they're my family. And so what is our decision? Well, at C4, I and other pastors are going to preach strongly and with belief on both our primary and secondary views. We believe in eternal security in this church. We believe communion's one way or not the other. But we are never going to get to the place where we speak against others that we disagree with. The great phrase that needs to be recaptured, and it's the heart of Romans 14 in a different vein, is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, say the last word, charity. Can you say that with me? Charity. Let me say it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Thank you, Jesus. Right on. This, this here allows churches to preach the gospel, defend the truth of orthodoxy, allows us to still preach with authority where we disagree, and in the end still say, you're my brother and my sister, my gun is down. Why? Because there's a world that is watching to see if we put our money and our life where our mouth is. Romans 14 is needed. And my challenge to you and myself this week and now today is this. Are you a weak Christian? Are you a strong Christian? Are you both? There's a good chance you are. I know I am. Let us take Romans 14, not just as a mantra that we say today and forget tomorrow, but as our very worldview. Because if we do this, there will be unity in this church. There will be unity in our families. There will be unity with churches right across Durham. And when we interact with others, our first question is going to be, is this cultural? Is this scriptural? Or is this my problem or their problem? Let me tell you, the world needs a unified church. We're never going to be fully unified till Jesus returns. But Romans 14 shows us the path how to get there. So if you dare, why don't you join me in praying that this becomes our reality. And let's pray this not only for ourselves, but for our whole community in this area. Lord, we, we come to you this morning and, I mean, thank you. This, this is a very, very practical 
needed part of Scripture. And the truth is, all of us sitting here, I, I think have probably had the experience where first we've had people going through our mind that we've been saying are weaker or stronger. And <laughs> forgive us, because we need to start with us. So as a community, for us sitting here today and us online, uh, we'd like to say this. Forgive us, Lord, for causing disunity when we had no right. Forgive us for taking gray areas and dividing the church over them. Forgive us, Lord, for being arrogant or judgmental. Forgive us, Lord, for being uninformed. And, and Lord, forgive us for using your name in vain. Because many of us have used the God card just to justify something you never did. Lord, we also pray that you'd build the unity of this church in families and small groups and across our church. And we pray that wherever there have been disputable matters, forgive us, and we pray that we can move on. We, we pray also, Lord, for our unity with other churches in this area. Lord, you know we love our brothers and sisters and we have big disagreements with them. And part of them are cultural and theological. But we pray at the end of the service, genuinely, for your blessing on every church that loves you in this area. We pray for our unity with them. We pray that we would have charity, we would have liberty, and we'd have unity. And Lord, we just we pray that this would take place. I also ask that our own hearts or the kingdom of darkness would never be able to access this church in such a way to cause major mistrust or breakdown because of non-essential issues or secondary theology. Lord, give us a maturity in this church so we ourselves can represent you right. And all of God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand and let's sing to the one that we all are connected to. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.